This podcast contains adult language and explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Grant. And I'm Erica. And this is From From Crime Crime to to Crime. Crime. Welcome back to From Crime to Crime. And a special welcome to you, Erica. Welcome back. Hey, buddy. How's it going? Well, so far, so good, but we haven't gotten into the good stuff yet. Yeah, tonight's case is a big one. Serial killer. Very excited. You know I love my serial killers. I know you do. But there's not that many. That's why I try to limit you. I mean, there's a lot, but there's not that many that are interesting. We could have done a complete first season just on serial killers. Oh, want to hear something crazy that happened to me today? Yes, absolutely I do. Okay, so for some reason, I heard a Matchbox 20 song come on my Amazon. They were like, oh, you might like this. And I was like, I forgot about Matchbox 20. Yeah. I do like them. Do you? Well, I mean, as much as the next person. And so I, I went on Amazon and I went and I searched Matchbox 20 and just like played it. And I thought I was going to hear like, you know, 3 a.m. and Push because I thought they were like a two hit wonder band. Do you know they have like 12 songs that you know? No. Dude, they have so many songs that I knew and that I didn't even know that I knew. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is them. Oh, yeah. I was like, I, whenever I think of them, I always think they're like a one hit wonder. But turns out they've had like 12 hits. Yeah, they're pretty big time for there for a while. Yeah. Anyway, I just thought that was super weird. I was like, oh, I was like, am I the only person that didn't know that Matchbox 20 was cool? Um, I don't know. Is that Matchbox 20 that cool? Rob Thomas? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm just saying. I was singing. He did play with Santana, which is pretty cool, but I, I don't think Matchbox 20 is that Which cool. is funny because even that song was not even on one of the 12 songs that played that I knew. Oh, well then, I did not know that Matchbox 20 had more than the song with Carlos Santana, so that's a huge surprise to me, you, and probably everybody else listening. Yeah. Anyways, I'll play them for you after the show, and I'll remind you that you do know all of them. That's what I was hoping you would do, actually. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, then let's get to Ed Kemper so we can listen to Matchbox 20 when we're done. Let's. uh, We're going to drag this out then. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to start with our first serial killer of season two. And it's probably the biggest serial killer or at least maybe the most well-known because he helped define serial killers. Obviously, we're talking about Edmund Emil Kemper III. He was born in Burbank, California on December 18th, 1948. He was the middle child and he had a sister that was five years older than him and then a younger sister too who was a few years younger. This is the second killer that we've done on our podcast who has the middle name Emil. So don't give your kids a middle name Emil is what I'm getting from this. Yeah. I just thought that was random. Like John List's middle name was Emil too. And he did some crazy things. So... This, yeah. this really does work out quite perfect. Yeah. So his dad, Edmund II, was a World War II vet, and he tested nuclear weapons before moving back to California after the war. He worked as an electrician when he got out of the service. That's quite the discrepancy, being an electrician and testing nuclear weapons. Well, I don't know if there's like a testing nuclear weapons equivalent in the civilian world. There's got to be something along the same lines of, I mean... Homer Simpson works in a nuclear power plant. Why couldn't he? I don't know. I've never watched The Simpsons. What? <laughs> I know. Oh, my, my God. My husband gets really mad at me whenever I say that. I literally don't. Never. I've never. What do you mean you've never seen The Simpsons? No. I mean, I know who the characters are and stuff just because people reference them, but. I've Did you ever play The Simpsons, Simpsons video game? Absolutely not. Oh, my gosh. 
this is over. Have I ever played a video game? The ones at Chuck E. Cheese, though, were so good. <laughs> they had the Ninja Turtles okay. one. They had that one. And probably Ski Ball. Okay, we're getting really off track, Grant. We're in the first sentence. We'll get there. <laughs> Okay, so his dad is a World War II vet who moves back to California, becomes an electrician. His mom's name is Claire Clarnell. Clarnell? I don't know. It's kind of a name. That's a whole name. Yeah, I don't know. So I'm going to call her Clarnell because, I don't know. <laughs> call her Clarney. Right. She's a Clarney. I'm sure people probably called her Claire, but we weren't friends, so I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Anyway, she's been accused of complaining about her husband's menial electrician job and, you know, one of those people that maybe wasn't ever satisfied with her life. And Ed's dad, Ed II, was later quoted saying suicide missions in wartime and atomic bomb testing were nothing compared to living with her and that she affected him more than 396 days and nights of fighting on the front line did. Like, that's a crazy comparison. And f from the research I've done, he was pretty dead serious about that, too. Yeah, I was like, whoa. So apparently his parents don't love each other super a lot. Well, back to little Ed. He came into this world weighing a whopping 13 pounds at birth. So it's a big baby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the time he was a small child, it was clear that Ed was going to be quite large. And not only was he gigantic, but he was pretty antisocial, too, and he also started to kill the family pets. This is kind of where I start to turn off to Ed Kemper <laughs> right away. Because um, around 10 years old, he buried the family cat alive and then dug it up once it was dead and decapitated it and put its head on a spike in the, in the yard. I'm a big cat person. I love cats. So this does not sit well with me. And I hate this part of the story as much as I hate the later parts too. Yeah, well, he's a monster. <laughs> he is. Trigger he killed... warning. Well, he He's killed another cat a few years later, and he even dismembered it all because he thought that his sister or he thought that the cat liked his sister more. Well, probably because his sister wasn't beheading cats. Right. I'm sure the cat so. did like his sister more. I'm not surprised yeah, by that. I already like his sister more. <laughs> so anyways, he also liked to play real funky games with his sister, like gas chamber and electric chair. So that's disturbing. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah. Little Eddie is kind of a monster. And he is admitted to being somewhat obsessed with one of his teachers and sneaking out of the house at night to go watch her through her windows. And when his sister kind of teased him and asked why he hadn't kissed her yet, he said, quote, because if I kiss her, I'd have to kill her first, unquote. Yep, yep. He Well, yep. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yep. And he's a child at this point. So his yeah. mind is already working in quite a different way than most. He's a second grader. That's that's crazy. Yeah. He also talked about how his older sister had tried to kill him by pushing him in front of a moving train, but he didn't get hurt. Then he says there was another time that she threw him in the deep end of the pool and he almost drowned. And honestly, that part sounds like typical older sibling behavior. Yeah, I kind of thought that too. But then on the other hand, I'm like, well, maybe she saw something going on with him that she was like, maybe I could just get rid of this one. Doing everyone a favor. Yeah. But in 1957, when he was eight or nine, his parents finally got divorced, which I'm sure was a relief for his dad. Yeah. Since he'd rather be on the front lines of war than <laughs> living with his mother. So he was close with his dad. But when they got divorced, his mom moved him and his sisters back to Montana, where she was from. And Ed and his mom had a seriously dysfunctional relationship. And he said that she was domineering and abusive and an alcoholic. And she showed him no affection because she was afraid it would turn him gay. That's which, how it works. Yeah, I'm sure that's how it works. <laughs> but 
Even I know that's not how it works. So, <laughs> but same thing like with his sister. Maybe there was something that maybe she was like, oh, this kid is a monster. Like maybe she knew and just didn't know how to deal with it, you know? I think she definitely saw something in him. Yeah. So Ed has said that she made him sleep alone in the basement. It wasn't like a furnished basement that was like a cool den. It was like a dungeon with a single light bulb in the middle and cold and yucky. He has said that she would kind of like banish him to sleep in the basement because she was afraid that he was going to hurt his sisters or even rape them. So, I mean, obviously his mom's seeing something in this kid already and... I yeah. I don't I don't agree with what she did, but I also can kind of understand what else does she do? You know? Well, yeah. I don't think this is the, the right 60s. answer. Right, exactly. I don't think this is the right answer, but you're right. In the 60s, there's not a lot of help well, in any way or talked about, so. Turns out it is the wrong answer, and <laughs> we'll find out why as yeah, we keep going. It normally But like is. you said, who knows what kind of research is she, but this doesn't seem like good parenting in any way, shape or form. But also, like you said, what did she, what was she going to do? Right. And there's been a lot of speculation that she herself may have suffered from some mental health issues and maybe had like a borderline personality disorder. Obviously nobody has evaluated her because we'll find out later. She's not around to do that, but yeah. just speculation is that she may have had some issues as well and that makes a lot of sense to me because because of what i do know about this kind of stuff it usually is hereditary and something that runs in the family line so yeah it can that, be yeah that that can make sense to me but at 14 ed ran away from his home in montana and he made it all the way back to van nuys california and he was looking for his dad but when he got there, he realized that his dad had remarried and started a new family. So it's just kind of weird already because he had this idea that if he moved or if he got away and was able to go visit his dad, his dad would welcome him with open arms. He didn't even know his dad was remarried or had any other, you know, had another son. No, I think he did because he's talked about in interviews that he went and visited his dad for short periods of time and then he would go back to Montana. But well, when he came out and wanted to live with his dad, it didn't go well no it didn't he he did stay with them for a bit but it's kind of been speculated too that that big ed the second's new wife was not a bit fan of big ed the third so ed the (laughs) second sent him to north folk north fork north fork yep sent him to north fork to live with his parents ed the original and ed the original's wife ed the second's mom ed the third's grandmother maude to their place in the mountains and ed the third hated it in north folk ed the third hated it in why north do you folk. keep saying north folk because i want to say folk north folk <laughs> it's north <laughs> it, fork yeah i don't like that okay well neither did ed the third <laughs> he said his grandpa was senile and his grandmother was also domineering and emasculating so we're seeing a pattern here, whether it's in the women or it's in the way Ed describes the women, but we're seeing a pattern. Yeah. I've wondered that, too, if they were both domineering women or if he just kind of didn't like women. Well, it's interesting because, you know, this is Ed the Second's mom, and so she could be domineering. And then if he married somebody who was also like that, mm-hmm. it would make yeah. sense. So it is kind of it's kind of a gray area. Yeah. And obviously we get all this information from Ed, the serial killer. Right. So unreliable narrator here but his grandfather had given him a rifle to help take care of the ranch and he really liked this he was like oh sweet 
But when they caught him killing animals with it, they took it away from him, which is like, I think that's a appropriate answer. Well, so I was thinking about this. Why did they give him a gun if they didn't want him shooting animals? I figured he was shooting like coyotes and, you know, rabbits trying to get food and, you know, things like that. What did they give him a gun for if it wasn't to shoot animals? Well, from the stories that I've kind of gathered from the interviews and everything, he was killing like pets with it, like neighborhood oh. cats and dogs. And oh, yeah, that's a he problem. Wasn't, he was also killing coyotes and, you know, scaring off different animals, but he was killing like domestic pets. Oh, I see. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. August 27th, 1964, 15 year old Ed and his grandma Maud were arguing in the kitchen and he stormed out and he went and got his rifle. He came back and he shot her in the head and then twice in the back. Yeah, this is not going well. No, no, especially not for Maud. No. After killing Grandma Maud, the OG Ed pulls up in his pickup truck from running errands and while he's grabbing stuff out of his truck, Ed, our Ed, walks up behind him and shoots him in the back of the head right there in the driveway. Mm. And after he did this, he didn't know what to do, so he called his mommy... And she told him to call the police, so he did. And he just sat there and waited calmly for the police to come and arrest him. Yeah, that's pretty intense behavior. I don't know how I feel about calling him our Ed as well, but I get it. <laughs> but that is, that's cold blood. Like, that is cold-blooded. Yeah. He had no qualms about any of that whatsoever. Yeah. The authorities show up, and here's this giant kid. Remember, he's 15 years old, and he's already 6'4", and he's just sitting there waiting calmly for them. After he was arrested, the police were kind of like, hey, Ed, uh, what's going on here? Why'd you kill your grandparents? And his reaction is so cold and callous. He just goes, oh, I just wanted to see what it would like to kill Grandma. And when Grandpa came home, I didn't want him to see that his wife was dead, so I killed him too. Like, so matter of fact, and he just did it because he wanted to see what it was like. Yeah. The authorities are dumbfounded, obviously, because they've never seen this before. And they thought that this kid was obviously insane. And a court psychiatrist diagnosed him as a paranoid schizophrenic. So instead of jail, 15-year-old Ed was sent to Atascadero State Hospital, which is a maximum security facility for the mentally ill, for the criminally mentally ill. And his sentence was undetermined. It was up to the hospital how long he was going to serve. <sighs> For two brutal murders. Yeah. We'll just see how it goes. We'll play it by ear. Yeah. And while he was at Atascadero, Ed realized that he, he was brighter than most. And the doctors at Atascadero did not think he was schizophrenic. He took an IQ test and he scored a 136 the first time and they gave it to him again. And he scored even higher. He got a 145, which is insanely high. I think average is about 100. He even started helping the staff administer these tests and evaluations to other inmates, which should not have happened at all. No. Ever. But he was bright enough to realize that, hey, he could fool the staff. So he did. And then they went and they undiagnosed him as a schizophrenic and they re-diagnosed him as having a personality trait disturbance, passive aggressive type. I'm sorry, but killing your grandparents That's in not cold passive blood aggressive. out of nowhere at 15 feels a little more aggressive aggressive. Yeah, that's not passive aggressive. That's actively being aggressive. Yeah, that's pretty violent. Dude, 1964. It's, it's a lawless land. No wonder. Yeah, crazy. So anyway, he was good at manipulating them, obviously. He even helped develop new testing and contributed new scales on the MMPI, which is the Minnesota Multifacic Personality Index. So he was killing it 
at a Tascadero, for lack of a better term. He was really like A-plus number one inmate or patient. Well, right. And he was doing so well manipulating the staff there that they even recommended that he be released. And so on his 21st birthday, for some reason, they, they let him out on parole. And he went to live with his mother, who was now back in California, and she was working at UC Santa Cruz. And the doctors thought it was not a good plan that he moved back in with her. But the parole board couldn't say whether he could live with her or not. So off he went and moved back in with her. Yeah, because he was an adult. Yep. And if he was free to leave, he was free to leave, I guess. So back in the 70s, the state of California was real into rehabilitation instead of just detention because they thought probably well intended that they could fix people like Ed Kemper. And knowing this, Ed began to work to get his record expunged. I wish we'd go back to more rehabilitation other than detention, but... Well, this case is a a good cause for not doing that because it did not work. Uh, well, technically. But Ed was just trying to be normal. He went on a date with a girl after his release from Atascadero, and he described it as a disaster, which I would love to hear how she described it if he described it as Me a disaster. Too. That would have been so cool. But like he said, he was only 15 when he went in there, and he had never been on a real date before, so... He took this girl to Denny's and then they went watched a John Wayne movie together. So honestly, it's not the worst. I was going to say, I've been on worse dates than that. Yeah, like, it's not the worst. Definitely not. I'm like, get a Denver scramble and then watch True Grit. Like, I'm in. Moon's over Miami and you're ready to, to watch the Duke, I think. Yeah. I think Ed being on the date was probably the disastrous part, but John Wayne and Denny's. So at this point, he's trying to be normal. And he's attending community college and wanted to become a police officer. So he started rubbing elbows with the local cops at a bar called the Jury Room. And turns out he was pretty friendly with them and they liked him. I think this is super interesting that he did this because it's kind of the same thing he did while he was at Atascadero. He wanted something so he befriended the people who could give that to him. So he thought, yeah. hey, if I get in with these cops, they can make me a cop. But anyway, so his love life isn't really happening. He's hanging out at jury room too much and he's living with his mom, which is a real buzzkill on that. And yeah. they're not getting along. Not that they ever did, but they have a lot of issues. And according to Ed, she was impossible to live with. And I'm sure she thought the same thing, but he struggled financially and worked menial jobs. So he continued to live off of her and with her, which he said, though, that she blamed him for all the, of her problems in life. And they fought about everything, even things like getting his teeth clean they would fight about yeah but he would move out of her house off and on he would get apartments and then go back and you know he'd get a job or get money and then he'd get his own place and then he'd go back in with his mom like he lived with her off and on he didn't live with her all the time right sometime in the early 70s ed decided to get a motorcycle and then pretty soon thereafter he was hit by a car and got a head injury which is never really a good thing well you'd think for this it might help things out because he's already a little yeah. you know a little weird, weird in the head anyway. Yeah, but how often do we hear about serial killers getting a head injury and then serial Yeah, not very often. All the time. Oh, really? Almost every case. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So after this motorcycle accident and his head injury, which I've never really been clear on how severe the head injury was, but it was severe enough that he received a settlement that allowed him to buy a car, a Ford Galaxy. He says that this was around the time that he started picking up hitchhikers. This was kind of like a hobby for him. He loved to just drive around and pick people up. He said it was like his freedom. He would have loved Uber. Yeah. And this is when fantasies of... 
him killing these hitchhikers really started cranking into high gear because he was picking up hitchhikers all the time. This does kind of make sense to me, though. Like, he wants to be around people. He wants to be participating Mm -hmm. in society. He's just really bad at it. And he has a whole bunch of time on his hands anyway, so... And he's perfecting his social skills. Exactly. He's learning from these people what's normal, what isn't normal, what scares people, what doesn't scare them. Exactly. He's hanging around the same people he wants to be involved with, just like the police or the people out of Tescadero. By 1972, though, his parole psychiatrist recommended expunging his juvenile record because he was doing so well. And this is what he said. If I were to see this patient without having any history available or getting any history from him, I would think that we were dealing with a very well-adjusted young man who had initiative, intelligence, and who was free from all psychiatric illnesses. It is my opinion that he has made he has made very excellent response to the years of treatment and rehabilitation, and I would see no psychiatric reason to consider him to be any danger to himself or any other member of society. And since it may allow him some more freedom as an adult to develop his potential, I would consider it responsible to have this permanent expungement of his juvenile records. End quote. So they were going to expunge his record as if he'd never killed anybody. Yeah. But even with his record expunged, he was still rejected by the police department because of his size. So by this time, Ed is a full grown man. He's 21, 22 years old, and he's six foot nine and almost 300 pounds. And apparently that disqualifies you from being a cop in the 70s. But murdering your grandparents is totally fine. Well, they didn't know about that yet. They were going to find out eventually, I'm sure. But they didn't know about that yet. And I mean, six, nine at 300 pounds. That's not a fat dude. (laughs) That is a very large, probably very strong man. So that's very intimidating to say the absolute least. But I'm sure that a lot of the disqualification and size and everything, obviously this was before like discrimination laws and all that totally i'm sure it was logistics for real it was probably like fitting in cop cars and fitting in small space like i'm sure there was reasons for the size problem oh i'm sure yeah absolutely i'm sure there was a on the other end of the spectrum too i'm sure you had to be a certain height to be a cop so oh i'm sure there was a minimum height yeah yeah definitely so in may of 1972 Ed's working for the Department of Transportation, and he finally moved out of his mom's house again, but she remained pretty involved in his life, stopping by unannounced, and according to Ed, she was still fighting with him. Ed even asked her to introduce him to some young women from the college that she worked at, and she refused, and according to Ed, she said mean and degrading things to him, like he didn't deserve to know them, he wasn't good enough, etc., etc. Right here, I think that's weird that he asked his mom to set him up, first and foremost, and it's not weird that she said no because he's obviously got something going on and she knows it. And I don't know how, how much she did say these mean and nasty things. Maybe they were just the truth. And to him, it was mean. Well, and that's the thing too, is like, how is she going to do that? Right. She's an administrator who works at the college. What is she going to be like? Hey, so my son just got out of a loony bin (laughs) for killing his grandparents. He's over six feet though. Would you like to go on? Yeah. Like (laughs) what the hell? What did he think she was going to do? I don't know. This is a lot. Being a a man myself, I would never ask my mom to help me find a date. If anything, it was like, hey, stay out of this. I'll figure it out. Yeah, please and thank you. So May 7th of 1972, Kemper's driving like he always does. 
and he picks up two girls hitchhiking, Marianne and Anita, and they were both 18-year-old college students from San Francisco State, and he said they were wanting to go to Stanford University, and he drove for about an hour and found a secluded wooded area where he handcuffed Marianne, and then he put Anita in the trunk. This is where things are about to get really disturbing, just warning for everybody. We're going to say things that are very uncomfortable to say. The things that he does, he starts doing with these girls and it continues on throughout his spree are some of the most weird, sadistic, gross, and and like Erica said, really uncomfortable things that I have ever heard in true crime. And we've been doing this for quite a while. So, yeah. So... He handcuffs Marianne. He puts Anita in the trunk of the car. Once Anita was in the trunk, he stabbed and he started strangling Marianne. And he tried to rape her, but apparently that was not functioning. After killing Marianne, he opened the trunk and he killed Anita by stabbing her. He placed both of these women in the trunk and he drove home. On the way back, he was even pulled over by the police for a broken taillight, but the cop never looked in the trunk because he didn't have any reason to look in the trunk. Who would for a broken taillight? Well, one, who would for a broken taillight? And the other thing is, I don't know how, I mean, this is Ed telling us he got pulled over. True. Like, I don't know if there's any record of him actually being pulled over or not, but I don't know. Seems like a weird thing to make up, but also seems like something he would make up. It's a very unreliable source, so... Yeah. So once he got to his apartment, he took both women's bodies inside where he photographed, raped, and then dismembered them. And he placed all of their body parts in plastic trash bags and disposed of them in the mountains, except their heads. He decided to keep their heads with him for a while so he could do things to their heads yeah it's a little all uh his you know this cat incident again like he dismembered them he took you know the head and 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 had it so it's we've we've seen this trend before but what he does to the heads of the women is is really what the most uncomfortable part of it is yeah so he keeps the heads with him in his car so that he could rape the decapitated heads whenever he decided that he wanted to do that. So once they were decomposing too much, he tossed their heads into a ravine. That's a lot. It is a lot. There's a lot going on there. (sighs) Kemper's third hitchhiking victim would be on September 14th, 1972, when he picked up a 15-year-old girl named Eiko Koo, who decided to hitchhike to dance class after missing her bus. This is so sad that she was just trying to get to dance class and here comes Ed Kemper, but he offered her a ride and she's 50. Yeah. I was thinking about that too. Like on top of all of that, like she's just a baby, you know, she's a baby, but Ed offered her a ride and he drove her again to a remote area where he pulled a gun on her and he obviously scared her. Then he accidentally locked himself out of his own car. And even with the keys and the gun being in the car, Ed somehow talked her into letting him back into the car, which would be a disastrous mistake because once she did, immediately he proceeded to choke her until she was unconscious and then he raped her and he killed her. I I, I just don't understand. It just shows how manipulative he is. I guess so. Like he was able to manipulate the psychiatrist, the police officers, the parole board, all the court systems. Everybody. Yeah. He even talked this girl into letting him back in the car. She had the gun and the keys. I would have shot him and drove off. Well, absolutely. And, you know, he was telling her, like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I'll let you go. Like, oh, my gosh, this is a huge mistake. I can't believe I did this. Blah, blah, blah. It's like, 
Yeah, that ship has sailed, dude. Like, yeah. we're not. No, nope. this isn't an option anymore. Bye. Yeah, either you're dead or I'm yeah. leaving. Or I mean, probably yeah. both if it was you or I involved. But yeah. So Ed puts her body into the trunk of his car, and he went to the jury room. Absolutely, crazy. and had a few drinks with his cops friends, and then he went home. And he said that after leaving the bar, he opened the trunk of his car, quote, admiring his catch like a fisherman, yep. unquote. When he got home, he raped her again, and then he dismembered her and dumped her like the first two victims. So this is bad. It is bad. And it's obviously bad because of what happened. But him going to the jury room, it just proves that he's not afraid. Like, he's not. Af- no, he's cocky as yeah, shit. Yeah, he doesn't care. Like, you know, he's. This is a cop bar. The jury room is a cop bar. I've heard police talk about it. They say it's a cop bar. It's a cop bar. Cops are hanging out there. Yeah. And this guy went and taunted. Well, yeah. But why wouldn't he? He killed his grandparents already and got away with that. This is a whole other other level. It is. But think about that. He was 15 and they sent him to a maximum security mental institution for the or mental facility for the criminally insane. He was in there with a ton of other mentally ill sex offenders and, you know, violent criminals. I'm sure he heard a lot more than he probably should have. And I'm sure they taught him things I'm sure that they he did probably too. shouldn't have learned. Yeah, I'm pretty positive of that too. Yeah. His fourth victim would be 18-year-old Cindy Shaw and on January 7th, 1973, he was driving around Cabrillo College when he picked her up and they would end up in another secluded area. Obviously, this was kind of his thing and he shot Cindy and then he placed her body in the trunk of the car and he drove to his mother's house because that's where he was living again with her because, you know, He's not super good with money or staying out on his own, being normal, things like that. Right. He kept this body hidden in his closet for the entire night. And then after his mother left for work the next morning, he raped her body and he removed the bullet from her corpse. And then he dismembered and decapitated her in his mom's bathtub. None of this gets better. Like it all just seems to be continually getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Yep. So Ed kept Shaw's head for several days like he's done with his other victims, regularly raping her. And then he decided when it was time that he buried it in his mother's garden, facing up at his mother's bedroom. Mm. And after he was arrested, he said that he did this because his mother always wanted people to look up to her. There's so much going on here that yep, it's just so hard to wrap around. It's yep. just so hard. Like the thoughts that he has going into these, I mean- I don't think it's a spoiler alert to realize that he's obviously has his mom in mind while he's doing these yeah. things. Uh, if he hadn't before, yeah. at least he is now. Yeah, he's got some serious yeah. mom oh, things. Absolutely. Which were addressed at a Tascadero, and they pretty much told him to cut ties with her, but he didn't. So, anyway, he threw the rest of Cindy's remains off of a cliff into the ocean, and a few weeks after. He did this. There was a pretty heavy storm and her body parts started to turn up and they found almost everything except her head and one of her hands. And the pathologist that examined her remains determined that Cindy was dismembered with a power saw. Oof. So he's literally dismembering his victims with a power saw in his mother's bathtub. Yeah. While she's at work. 
Like, what kind of housekeeping is going on at this house that there wouldn't be evidence of this when she got home from work? Well, that begs the question, too. How well did Ed clean it up? You know, maybe he did. Maybe he cleaned it up really well. Yeah, maybe. But I just feel like their bathroom looks like the bathroom at the Bojangles from definitely it definitely does that or anything that dexter touches it has to be something like that yeah something's going on here like how do you not know right on february 5th 1973 after a really heated fight with his mom again ed left and he did what he did he went to go look for another victim and apparently the news of a serial killer was kind of on the loose because actually there was two going on at the time the other was herb mullen he was also hitting the santa cruz area pretty hard and at the time also the colleges and the universities, they had advised their students not to hitchhike unless it was with another student because apparently students don't kill. Yeah. Well, they also said to to only do if you have to, to only right. do it in pairs. Right. Which he killed in pairs. So it's like- Who cares? That didn't help either. Right. Again. But yeah. unfortunately though, Ed had a campus sticker on his car because his mom worked for UC Santa Cruz. So when he came across 23-year-old Rosalind Thorpe and her 20-year-old friend Alice Liu on the UC Santa Cruz campus, Rosalind got in. Maybe reassured by his campus sticker, like the university had kind of said, hey, look out for this and you'll be good to go. And then she convinced Alice to take the ride too. He shot Rosalind first and then Alice and then wrapped them in blankets. Ed also took these two victims to his mom's house, but he beheaded them in the car this time and he only brought their bodies in so that he could rape and dismember them. Yeah, which to me, what are the logistics of decapitating somebody in a car? A lot. It's got to be a lot. There's got to be a lot of sawing involved. Maybe that's where the power saw comes involved because... Yeah, but... I know there's a what lot. What the hell? Well, if it was in, if it's in the trunk, I guess you can like keep it to a like a localized area. Yeah, yeah, maybe. So that's the only thing I. Could I didn't think, think of. of that. Yeah, that's the only thing I could think of was that because there's going to be a lot of blood, unfortunately. Yeah, because I'm thinking like, okay, you shouldn't be hitchhiking anyways, but sure. if you're hitchhiking and a guy pulls over and you lean in to talk to him and there's blood splatter all over the inside yeah. of his car, I would assume that would be like. Huh. I'm not going to take that ride. Yeah, even if he was insured by survival. Right. I was just thinking that. <laughs> I knew that. When I said it that way, I knew that's where your brain was going to go. Ed also remembered to remove the bullets, to remove any kind of link to him, which is really, really smart of, of him to do, is to take those bullets out. But then he dumped the remains the next morning. Some of the remains were found about a week after, and some were found even months down the road, too. But taking the bullets out kind of, to me, shows, like, okay, obviously there was premeditation. He oh, knew yeah. he was going out looking for victims. But then there was also thought afterwards of cleanup and cover-up and all that stuff. Like, that's all a problem when you're trying to get less time in a court. Well, and this is kind of where I think he did learn something from his time in the loony bin because he knew that, you know, the bullets would be different, so he took him out so are we allowed to say loony bin i mean i don't think anyone's gonna stop me i if i'm not i would i, I just thought of that because i said it earlier too well if you have a problem with loony bin go to our instagram at from crime to crime or send erica a detailed scathing email at from the crime to crime <laughs> podcast at gmail.com and i'll forward it to grant it'll go in my spam folder yeah no, I, I do know what you're saying, though. Like, I feel like he did learn a lot when he was at Atascadero. And I'm sure he learned a lot even from his cop buddies at the bar. Yeah. About what they find at crime scenes and what they don't find and what leads them to killers. And I learned about bullets matching up and things like that from a cartoon. I think it was Rescuers Down Under. And they take the, the 
bullets and they like size them up and somehow they get them to line up and I don't remember all the ins and outs but that's how they yeah it's it's called ballistics Grant well I know what it's called but but this was you know in the, I didn't know that in the time so it's probably like 94 95 oh you mean like as a kid yeah yeah oh I thought you meant like recently I was like are you an idiot what <laughs> no I'm I like won't. you do know we have a true crime podcast right <laughs> no I watched a like you can at least act like you know stuff. <laughs> No, it was a it was a uh, a cartoon. It was a movie. I, like I said, I think it was Rescuers Down Under, and they do it the whole thing. Okay, it's a, it's great. So when he was asked later why he decapitated his victims, Ed said, "quote The head trip fantasies were a bit like a trophy. You know, the head is where everything is at. The brains, the eyes, the mouth. That's the person. I remember being told as a kid, you cut off the head and the body dies. The body is nothing after the head is cut off." Well, that's not quite true. There's a lot left on a girl's body without the head. Unquote. Nope. Puke. Don't like that. That is foul. Don't like that one bit. And I don't like reading that quote, watching him say shit like that so stone-faced and like he's talking about fucking granola bars is like the worst. It is like the actual worst. His interviews really are the worst. I don't know how anybody sits in a room with him and doesn't want to just choke him out. And almost everybody that's interviewed him is like, he's a really nice guy. Like, I actually kind of liked him. He was charming. It's like, ugh. Like, what are you fucking talking about? I get that, though. When you look at his interviews, you don't get the wide-eyed, creepy, like, you know, what you would typically think of somebody who is a serial killer or a spree killer or anything like that. He really does act quite normal. So I understand the interviewer well, saying. Well, he's very polite. Right. And I get what you're saying by that. But that's what makes it worse. It does, 100%. He's so polite and straightforward yep. about the worst Yes. Things you've ever heard. And, and it's like, un- yeah. this is bad. It's so bad. It's so, so bad. Because you're looking at him saying these things and he's saying them so matter of fact. And your brain goes, that's not what you're supposed to say. Yeah, what, what do you, I know. What do you, wait, what? And the, It wh- just like immediately makes me want to like crawl out of my own skin. Yeah. I'm like, uh, like just, uh, all right. it is. Uh, so, uh. All right. So back on topic at this point. Kemper has killed about, I think, six women and his grandparents. And according to him, he had an epiphany that he needed to kill his mother or more college girls were just going to keep dying. Yeah. So it's like he figured out that he was like what the root subconsciously trying to kill his mother. Right. He figured out what the root of the problem was and he went to go take care of it. Right. He had said that he knew for about a week that he was going to kill his mom. He just had decided and that was what was going to happen. And then. On the night of April 20th, 1973, Clarnell, who was 52, had come home and she was reading a book in her bed. And Ed says that she was drunk and that she drank quite often. And then according to Ed, in a condescending tone, she looked up from her book and said, I suppose you're going to want to sit up and talk all night now. And Ed just said, nope, good night. And he turned around and he walked out because he knew he was going to kill her. I think he went up there to give her one last chance and... She blew it, <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, that's really the impression that I got, too, from, like, his interviews, was that he was literally going to give her, like, one chance to be, like, a loving mother. Yeah, after, and after all these years. he didn't like the way she said that, and... Just solidified it for it. him. Yeah, that was it. That's like, okay. But I really think, if you think about what she said, though, like, because even he says this is what she said, it's not that bad. It's not that bad. Like, it's late at night. Ed's annoying, and she pro- he walked in, and she was like, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk. It's like it's not like she said, get the fuck out of here, you weirdo. I don't think it mattered what she said. 
he already had made up his mind that he was going to kill her. At that point, you're probably right. Unless she kind of did a 180. Yeah. Because this doesn't sound like she said anything that bad. No. I think he had made up his decision. And unless she was going to be super warm and loving towards him, she was she, yeah. she was going to kill her. You know? Yeah. So apparently he waited until she was sleeping. And at like four o'clock in the morning, he snuck back up into her room and repeatedly hit her in the head with a claw hammer, and then he slit her throat. Oof. He was going for, like, it wasn't any messing around. He was doing this to make it hurt and to make sure that it happened. Yeah, because this is not the way he killed any of his other victims. Precisely, yep. I wish we could say that it ended there, but it certainly did not. After he slit her throat and bashed her head in with a claw hammer, he proceeded to decapitate her like he did his other victims, and then he raped her severed head. Ugh. How did it get worse? He, like, he, yeah. He, oh, he. Oh, it gets worse. I know. Yep. So he said that he quote put her head on a shelf and screamed at it mm. for an hour. Mm. Then I threw darts at it and eventually smashed her face in. End quote. He then cut out her tongue and her larynx and he put them in the garbage disposal. But oddly, the garbage disposal wasn't designed to break down the tough vocal cords. And it spit them back out at Ed. Oh, what? And when he was interviewed about it later, he said, well, that seemed appropriate as much as she'd bitched and screamed and yelled at me over the years. I'm like, what? I know. Like, I know. It, was he joking? I I, I don't know. It's... I couldn't with that. I was like, you're literally talking about how you tried to throw her vocal cords down the garbage disposal and they spit back at you. And he was like kind of giggly about it. I think he thought it was kind of funny. Like. Ugh. I think in the in the thick of all this, Ironic. yeah, I think he thought it was a little like, <laughs> you know, because he's so gone at this point, like he's not thinking like you or I would. I think he's just kind of like, oh, no. well, well, that's it is. What I don't it know is. that Ed ever thought like you or I would. Well, that <laughs> I mean, from stories of his childhood and stuff, he yeah. says that from a young, young age, yeah. he was already thinking about killing people. So definitely that's kind of weird. So Ed has his mother's body in a closet and not that the rest of it wasn't strange, but then he does something even more strange. He calls up his mom's yeah. best friend, Sally Hallett and invites her over for dinner. And when Sally comes over, Kemper strangled her to death and it was possible he did this to create a cover story that his mother and Sally had gone away together on vacation because he thought he would kind of, you know, buy him some time to for either to get away or have yeah. a story. But subsequently, he put Hallett's corpse in the closet, cleaned the house up a little bit like he seems to always do. And then he left mm -hmm. a note to the police and it read approximately 515 a.m. Saturday morning. No need for her to suffer any more at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. <sighs> he he did Who it. Who leaves a note for the cops? Like, what a D-bag. I... And he's talking to them like it's they're his buddies, well, which they I... they were at that point. Well, well, yeah, we'll get there. So, at this point, Ed bails. He gets in his Ford Galaxy and he drives. And he just drives and drives and drives, taking caffeine pills and drinking coffee oh, to stay awake. And just like in Saved by the, the Bell when Jesse takes all those caffeine pills? Yeah. Oh, yeah. nice. I'm so excited. <laughs> but he drives nonstop to Pueblo, Colorado. And after not hearing any news about him being wanted for the murders of his mom and Sally, when he arrived in Pueblo, he was like, kind of thought he was on the run. And then when he realized nobody was chasing him, <laughs> he found a phone booth and called the cops. And he was like, hey, guys, so I murdered my mom and her friend Sally. 
And the cops were like, okay, Big Ed, and, like, didn't take it seriously. So a couple hours later, Ed called back, and this time he asked for a specific officer that he knew personally, and he confessed to killing his mom and Sally, and then waited for the cops to come and take him into custody. And once he was in custody, he confessed to being the co-ed killer, which was the nickname the media had given him. Yeah. When asked in an interview later why he turned himself in, he said, quote, the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse, I just said to hell with it and called it all off, end quote. The way he's trying to explain it seems like all of his victims were surrogates for killing his mom. And once he killed his mom, it was like, took the fun out of it, I guess, for him. I think it took the purpose out of it. Is You know, I think his reason for doing it, why he wanted to do it, why he needed to do it, he didn't need or want to do it anymore because it wasn't going to hurt the person he was trying to hurt the most. Right. He was brought back to California to face eight counts of murder in the first degree, which seems still pretty light, but... He was indicted on May 7th. What do you mean seems pretty light? That's all they, that's the worst you can charge with. Yeah, I know, but I really would like, you know, some necrophilia or, you know, dismembering of a body, you know, just some other things to, to go along with yeah, that. other charges. Exactly. Yeah. There's just so much Rape. there. Yeah, exactly. There's just, I feel like he, even facing this, he still got off a little light, but he was indicted on May 7th, 1973. Because of his loose lips during his confession, the only defense he had was to plead insanity. And he tried committing suicide a couple times, but that failed. And then his trial started in October of 1973. Three court-appointed psychiatrists evaluated Kemper and decided that he was sane. Yeah. Three. So one of these three psychiatrists evaluated him under truth serum. Which is even less reliable than a lie detector. What is so, truth serum? Like alcohol? N- well, no, it's something. Well, there's multiple kinds, but no, it's like, I forget what it is. It's some chemical. I forget the name, but it's not even legal anymore <laughs> Good. because it's not, it doesn't work. It just makes you like real screwed up. So most people can't like hold a lie together when they're fucked up, <laughs> but some of them work. Some of them don't work. Most of them don't work. I don't know the ins and outs of truth serum. I think it's bogus. I think it's like made up in a cartoon. And I don't think it's legal in most cases, especially during an interrogation. But while under this truth serum, he admitted to cannibalism. He confessed that he sliced flesh off of their legs and cooked it into a casserole that he ate. Hmm. Ah, okay. Okay. Yep. And so he said this while he was under the juice, you know, the truth serum. The truth juice. Yeah. But he took this back after he was sober and Ed's given lots of interviews and he's pretty open, even saying stuff that's pretty embarrassing, you know, like about the size of his penis and how he was awkward with women and different things. Like, so this seems like a weird thing that he would take back. Yeah. It does seem like a weird thing he would take back, but like he's going to admit to raping decapitated heads but he's gonna draw the line at cannibalism like (laughs) well what i mean what i took from that was that it probably didn't happen because i feel like if it did he would have admitted it yeah i don't it doesn't sound like that's something that that really happened he was pretty open about what what did happen yeah that seems like that happened under the truth serum stuff which is whatever 
yeah bad it's just bad booze yeah it don't it's not booze it's like an injection eh. you say a lot of things when you're drunk too so we'll just call it booze yeah so in california to use the insanity defense they have to use the mcnaughton standard which is pretty strict about knowing what you're doing and if you know what you don't know is wrong but the prosecution pretty much proved he knew what he was doing because some of them were premeditated and there were clear signs that they were all covered up and cleaned up after. So Right. So if he didn't know it was wrong, why would he clean up? Yeah. Why it, would he cover it up? Precisely. Why would he remove the bullets? Exactly. You and know. that's kind of what the case against him was. But Ed actually did take the stand in the trial to explain that he killed them because he wanted them for himself, like possessions. He wanted to convince the jury that he was insane and this was the best way to go. Yep. Even though he manipulated a lot of people in his life including doctors and psychiatrists, he could not manipulate this jury. On November 8th, 1973, they found him sane and guilty on all counts, which is my dad's birthday. Oh, happy birthday, Dave. Yep. So Kemper then requested the death penalty, specifying that he wanted death by torture, which is not a thing. So instead, he was given seven years to life on all eight counts to be served concurrently, which is the most inappropriate sentence I've ever heard of in a case like this. Seven years to life? Yeah, that's pretty bad. Yeah, because his sentences are running concurrently, which means at the same time. Well, whoever would let this guy out? I mean, and I know that there's, you know, been some back and forth on that, but... Well, they already did once. (laughs) By the way, we did say my birthday in this episode, and you didn't mention it, but you did call it your dad, so I just wanted to... Just put that out there. You know what's funny is I thought you would mention it. And then when we talked about it just now, I didn't even, (laughs) I didn't mention it. You're right. When I was writing the notes, I noticed it. I thought about saying something then, but I was like, eh, I don't care. You didn't want to associate your birthday with Ed Kemper? (laughs) (laughs) Well, not yet. Maybe now that your dad has, but not before. Well, sorry. Kemper was sent to California Medical Facility in Vacaville, and while in prison, he actually met Herb Mullen, who was the other serial killer who was committing crimes at the same time that he was. (laughs) This story is fucking bananas. It is. It's all over the place. Like, Kemper says that nobody liked Herb, and Kemper manipulated him into changing his behavior, which, again, is (laughs) so weird and genius. Like, I get Sheldon Cooper vibes off of that when he's trying to manipulate Penny's behavior, but... In a much more sadistic kind of crazy way. Yeah. Well, I feel like this is Ed's enjoyment. Oh, yeah. Like, he's just, like, having fun with this. And it's like, this story is so fucking bananas. This guy is literally manipulating other serial killers (laughs) in prison. Well, the funny thing was, he used the only real intimidation thing that he had, which was himself. He physically intimidated Mullen. And Ed says, quote, Mullen's had a habit of singing and bothering people when somebody was trying to watch tv so i threw water on him to shut him up then when he was a good boy i'd give him peanuts herbie liked peanuts it was effective because pretty soon he asked permission to sing that's called behavior modification treatment end quote so (laughs) good golly this guy is so smart he he literally trained a serial killer yeah in jail yeah i've never ever heard of anything like this now who knows if this story's real or not i'm sure mullen's is like, no, that didn't happen. But, sure. But this is funny if it did happen. Oh, completely. Completely. I totally yeah. agree. So he's pretty busy in prison. After his arrest, he's probably best known because he 
gave a ton of interviews to everybody, you know, news outlets, documentaries, everybody. And he was even extensively interviewed by the FBI profilers like John Douglas in the early days of the behavioral science department. And that's what gave them a ton of insight on how serial killers operate and how their brains work. That's why when everybody's like, oh, Ed Kemper checks all the boxes of a serial killer, it's like, because he invented the boxes. He he made yeah. the boxes. Yeah, because the FBI went to him and said, um, excuse me, what should we be looking for? And he's like, well, you should be looking for a bitch mom, torturing animals. <laughs> yeah. this, like, he literally gave them the boxes. Absolutely. And he is, the I mean, the almost the father of serial killers in, in a way, because he's the one who laid the groundwork for yeah. how we know what to look for in, in people. So it's it's really right. crazy. He was portrayed in the first season of Netflix's show Mindhunter, which is about this. Like, And the guy who played him is awesome. Like, He does a really good job of playing Ed Kemper. And that show is about how the FBI interviewed him and got a lot of their knowledge of serial killers from him. Is that guy also 6'9"? He's 6'5". Oh, well. The difference between 6'5 and 6'9 is still so different. Like, it's it's a big amount. But in a show, they can make him seem sure. bigger. Sure, of course. Of you course. Know. So, but he's also known to do things around the facility. He's got, like, jobs. He's, like, he's like apparently really good at making ceramic cups. And he also reads books on tape for the blind. <laughs> <laughs> This is legitimate, dude. You uh, can buy audiobooks that are read by Ed Kemper. What? I don't know that that should be legal. I don't think that should be a thing at all. It's a thing. People are going to buy that. People probably listening to this have probably bought that or are going to buy that. So anyway, all of this happened and Kemper was first eligible for parole in 1979. So right. That's seven years. Yeah, like, that's, that's crazy. It. Thankfully, six years, seven years. Yeah. Exactly. And then thankfully and correctly, he was denied and then denied again yeah. in 80, 81 and 82. He waived his right to a hearing in 85. Then again, he was denied in 88, in 91 and in 94. He waived his right to a hearing in 97 and in 2002. He was then again denied in 2007. Then he waived his right to a hearing again in 2012, and he was denied parole in 2017. This guy will be eligible for parole again in 2024 when he will be 76 years old. And I really honestly don't think they'll ever let him out. They won't. I mean, they can't. Hopefully. With as much as going on with true crime and stuff now, I don't think there's any possible way that this guy could get a second chance, a third chance out in society. Yeah. Because. Yeah. This would be his third chance. Yeah. He already had his second chance and he killed eight more people. So he's also given interviews and people have asked him, like, why do you keep waiving your rights for parole and all that stuff? You know, and he's like, because society does not want me in. Like, he's like pretty open with the fact that he's fine where he is. He's probably, you know, accepted for the first time i think prison is actually a really good place for him with you know kind of everything he's got going on well prison is the best place for him because he definitely can't be in society yeah for sure well definitely anyway that is the bananas story of ed kemper and we're very sorry that we were so uncomfortable with some of the like pretty hardcore details like yeah yikes i'm normally pretty good with that kind of stuff but even this was you Me know too. it's pretty tough to say and do talk about especially when we talk to each other like off mic i can normally be like oh yeah decapitate you know like yeah totally but some of the stuff that he did to these women is like just 
uncomfortable to say. Well, it's like, unimaginable. I mean, it, it really is yeah, things. It's horrible. Some of, the, some of the things he does, I can say I've never thought about before. And so when you hear him, you're like, no. what? I know. All right. You ready to wrap this up? Yeah, we should. Um, all right. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to say I love you. Oh, yeah. Oh, by the way, is your house all good? No more trees falling? At the moment, there are two very large tree branches that are hanging in my neighbor's yard. I love how you call them tree branches. What else do you call Grant them? Grant has like eight. Are they oak trees? They're oak trees, right? Yeah. And they are like thousands of years old. Like they were probably there when the dinosaurs were around. And Only one they're huge. They're they're bigger than Ed Kemper big. <laughs> and he calls it a branch, but it's bigger than most trees. <laughs> it is Fell pretty big, yeah. on their neighbor's car, flattened it. Not flattened, just, it just crushed the passenger sh- side. Oh, you're right. It was the second tree that fell after the first one that flattened it. <laughs> it was the branch, and that landed on more on the hood than anywhere else. So as it sits right now, everybody's fine. Nobody's hurt. Insurances are involved. And mostly everybody is happy. Yeah, but the pictures and the videos are very apocalyptic looking. Maybe we should put them on our Instagram. Yeah, I think we should. I'd be, okay. I'd be okay with that. Yeah, I'd be okay with that. Yeah, so. All right, well, we'll put that video and picture up on Instagram of Grant's trees (laughs) that are deciding to just detach themselves from each other. Yeah, it was just one morning. They just decided to fall. No wind, no rain. Oh, winter's cold. Can't stop me, baby. No, no. No? All right, ain't a mountain high enough for anybody to listen still. Um, What are you listening? Oh, oh, we got to go. We got to go. I have like 13 Matchbox 20 songs to play for you. Oh, God. I love you. I love you too. Okay. Bye.